0: we're picking up uh, where we left off our conversation with Rachel Slater wrote the book Into the Raging Sea which is out now and it details the El Faro disaster and what i want to pick up at is because blame is i think a lot of the reason people will read this it's just human nature you want an answer whatever the case is and i think a lot of people look at the captain but the tote services was one of the ones that i keyed in on i thought to myself well this is their ship. There's got to be some sort of blame to go around. And there's one piece that you wrote about uh, that I want to read that says, um, throughout the day-long testimony, um, tote mariners uh, were described as the world's best, compiled with all the national standards and regulations but the evidence did not support that a month after El Faro went down tote issued its monthly safety memo a roundup of lessons learned in the past 30 days to its staff there was no mention of the cargo ship that had been lost under their watch apparently there were no safety lessons to be gleaned from the loss of El Faro can you begin to try to explain that
1: so yeah I wrote that but you just gave me chills (laughs) How can I explain that? I mean, there's so much that we can't explain in this book. Look, I don't want to blame Tote. There were so many things working against this ship, from the fact that it was old, from the fact that this hurricane kicked up so fast, from the fact that we were having trouble forecasting it, from global warming, which turned this hurricane into a monster in very little time, To the pressures being put on the captain and to, you know, things that he was dealing with on a personal level. So, I mean, it was a number of things that added up to conspire against this ship. Was Toad negligent? I mean, as we were all watching this unfold and, you know, the testimony that you just read about, I mean, we all just stood there shaking our heads. That shipping company was not tracking that ship But there were people on land who were, and they were not, the the executives of the shipping company. And one is Charlie Baird, who is right here in South Portland. He was sitting on his sofa that whole day, tracking that ship. But Tote wasn't.
0: I had when you described Charlie in this and where he is in that situation, just getting off that ship about ten days beforehand. I couldn't stop thinking about the movie, The Perfect Storm, and they they show you know they keep cutting back to the families and the people that are watching the news watching the weather seeing what's happening and you're you're helpless and that's the feeling that I felt obviously knowing how this had all ended but I had this feeling of helplessness as I read through this book
1: yeah Charlie wasn't the only one who felt helpless too I mean the people on the ship the mates the third mate the second mate the chief mate they all saw what was happening. The helmsmen who were there listening to the conversations, talking about rooting and the storm and how they were heading for it. I mean, what's horrifying about this disaster is that it unfolded over 26 hours, and we have all that dialogue. So we see normal people just like you and me dealing with a boss who's not listening. And when your boss doesn't listen, you can stomp out of the room. You can... You can tell them to screw off or whatever. You can drive home. You can quit your job. But when you're on a ship and your boss is making decisions that you don't agree with, you have to shut up and you have to follow orders. And that's the most horrifying, I think, part of this, of, of watching this disaster unfold, especially since we have, you know, the conversations that, that took a place aboard that ship.
0: And I'd like to key in on that for, for a minute, because as you read through this book, you will come across dialogue. And this is not you coming up with this dialogue. This is as it was spoken there. And it re- it reads, I hate saying it like this, because it's not a movie. It's it's so much worse than that. But it reads like a script.
1: I know. Isn't it crazy? It's art imitates life and it imitates art. I mean, it is insane. These people, of course, had no concept that anybody was ever going to listen to their words or read their words. But there are some incredibly poetic moments in the transcript leading up to the accident, some of them 20 hours before the ship went down. And actually the the final words also on that transcript right before that audio cuts out are the most powerful words I think I've ever read.
0: Reading through those last pages of the transcript, that was when— I- that was the movie part that kept coming up to me because I said, if this was a movie, I'd say, oh, that was such a dramatic thing. You know, that was so dramatic. And you'd almost say, like, well, who would think of something like that? But to read it that way and to know that that actually happened, I, I just felt sick as I was reading through everything. Was, were there moments like that as you, I mean, before those final pages, were there other of those kind of moments that you had as you read through?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Jack Jackson, who was one of the helmsmen, um, This was about 15 hours before they sunk. He's talking to his third mate. They're just chatting, you know, they're just chatting on the bridge. They're not aware of the microphones. They have no idea, you know, what's going to happen, obviously. Nobody predicts their own death. And he starts talking about the storm that he went through that was really intense. And he's talking about how he could see death. And it was such a beautiful, elegant, and and terrifying description of what was going to occur. So you're reading this man who's about to die talking about a time that he remembered that he was in a crazy storm and saw his own death before him. It was, it just gave me chills.
0: And there were a crew of people that had to sift through all 26 hours of that tape.
1: Yeah, the audio was terrible actually. So there were six microphones in the ceiling of the bridge of the ship and two of them actually fed to to one line. And as the storm kicked up, so already the, the audio wasn't great. And then as the storm kicked up, it, the audio just degraded. And so it actually took a thousand man hours to listen to the tape and transcribe it because they didn't want to do it wrong. And actually, I, can't, I, I hope I get this right, but it, it took one day, in fact, to cover just a few minutes of, of tape that was contested because there were several people listening to it. And, and they had to all agree on what was said.
0: I believe in the book you described it as one day for nine minutes and nine in a certain minutes, yeah. a certain portion. Not saying that that's how it went all the way through. Right. Uh, one other piece that I wanted to talk about in the book is in the epilogue. You talk about how and this is so true. Your whole life is linear. Like everything is just step by step by step, and you go you kind of go through the motions at certain points. But talk about the complacency, not just for tote for for everybody that's involved in something like this, and I think for people in everyday life, how complacency plays
1: such a big part. Well, that's just the thing. I mean, there had never been an, there hadn't been an accident like this in more than 35 years. And I think, you know, we all do go through life. Um, You know, I've been doing it the same way for a thousand times and nothing ever happened. So it must be okay. And um, yeah, I I think when you read this, it is a cautionary tale about um, being, getting too comfortable. And (laughs) I have to say like, while I was working on this, I got very uncomfortable and you know, you start checking, double checking, triple checking, make sure that you know the car isn't coming or something like that. but it's true you but you have to. I mean, you can't you can't live life you know looking over your shoulder all the time. Um, I think in this case, again, like I said, there were so many things working against these these poor mariners in this poor 40 year old ship that shouldn't have been out there in the first place.
0: And so we talk about some of those, I mean, as people will read through this book, because I really want to encourage people to read this, because you will just be dumbfounded by pretty much everything in this entire book, but just the idea that there are so many mistakes made by people and, you know, just by tech that shuts down over a period of time. But as people finish this, I'm sure everyone has said, okay, what has changed for laws, regulations? And I know you've mentioned this elsewhere, that there have been suggestions, but- nothing in terms of law and regulation so far. Do you think it's because we're three years down the line that complacency has already come back into play?
1: Ah, that's interesting. I mean, it's possible. The truth is, as you know, like laws take a long time to change and everything has to be debated. And of course, everything has financial consequences for the shipping industry. And one thing that I have learned through all of this, or one of the many things that I've learned, is how difficult the shipping industry is. It's it's a very expensive uh, business to get into. You know, uh, the investment is very high and your margins are very low. And especially now that a lot of countries are actually subsidizing their shipping industries and, and America doesn't so much. So, you know, there's over capacity in, in the world. There are too many ships and there there's not enough cargo to fill those ships and so the rates have gone down and down and down and down and <clears throat> so now what you have is a situation where people are desperate for those contracts desperate for that cargo this was actually a fairly lucrative run because Puerto Rico totally dependent on the ships however Puerto Rico as you know is going through this major economic crisis there's a there that's a that's a story in itself and um, that means that there are fewer and fewer people on the island and so it means the demand for goods is shrinking. This company knew that. It's, these are time bombs, right? Each one of these little things is, is a time bomb and it's set and it's going to go off at some point. We lost a ship. We lost an American ship. We lost 33 Mariners. And I hope it never happens again in my lifetime.
0: Every chapter is an if and a but. That's the other thing that kept going for me. If this wasn't a steamship, would something have been different? If the lines had been different on the amount of cargo that could have gone in there, and all of this leads to buts. You know, you, you say, I hope none of this happens, but it feels like there is a but coming all the time as we talk about all this stuff. because, but I don't know what has changed since something like that has happened.
1: I think, I think now. <laughs> it shouldn't take this but i think now that we have lost an american ship everybody on any american ship and mariners all around the world have el faro in their head now all the time and they're being more careful they're thinking a little more they're they're just being more cautious that's that's the impact of this right like we're just going to be more careful ultimately though there are some laws that i really hope change and one of them is um any ship's hull made before 1986 is able to carry open lifeboats which to me is completely insane we have these cool enclosed lifeboats they look like you remember the yellow submarine it looks like a tiny little proportionally challenged submarine um, and they're bright red so you could see them in the ocean and they're enclosed so they can get thrown around and you know they won't they won't be overcome by the waves on El Faro, because it was a hull built before 1986, were open lifeboats just like on the Titanic. There was literally no way that they, they could be deployed. And even if they could be deployed, that they could have saved these mariners.
0: There's so many more questions. There's a, a million things that I could ask you more about we're going to leave it at that cuz i really hope that people do read this book there is one last thing that i do want to ask you about because the number 33 I had no idea about any of this kind of stuff the connection of the number 33 do you mind going into that just a little bit as we close down here
1: yeah so um this is pastor robert green he is the father or the stepfather of um the the head chef on the ship who was that who died and um, this, so he's a pastor, and he actually looked up 33, and 33 is a really powerful number. It's the age that Jesus was when he died. It is the age that Muslims believe you are in heaven. Like you always wonder, right? Like when I go to heaven, how old am I going to mm-hmm. be? Apparently the Muslims believe it's 33. Um, the name of God, Elohim, appears 33 times in Genesis. God demanded that Noah build an ark dozens of times. His final request, number thirty-three, came with the covenant that he would never again flood the world. I mean, this is all so creepy. As I'm reading this, I'm just like, Ooh. the number thirty-three in Kabbalah signifies the end of suffering. In uh, Islam, um, oh, I mentioned uh, that it's it's Al Azim, the supreme glory. The Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, this just goes on, and and I'll, I'll get to the punchline. The Tibetan Book of the Dead describes 33 heavens ruled by Indra and 33 ruled by Mara. And consider science. The human spine has 33 vertebrae, and human DNA is made up of 33 turns.
0: The the entire book, I think, is encapsulated there in terms of there are so many things that lead to so many other things, and it just— gets your mind turning nonstop and you just wonder, how is how is that possible? That was the question that I think we all have when it happened, and even when you read just something small like that it encapsulates, how is that even possible that all those things can act like that?
1: It's just, it's an intense story, but it's an intensely spiritual story, if you will, um, because there were so many beautiful moments that came out of this, as well as, obviously, um, heartbreaking moments. but. We're lucky to have the audio. We're lucky to be able to connect with these mariners who we lost. They were good people. And now we're lucky that we can reflect on this and learn from this.
0: Thank you so much for taking time and doing this. I'm really glad that we were able to get you in. And I encourage everybody to check this book out, Into the Raging Sea. Rachel Slade, thank you for doing this.
1: Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.